going to welcome David up to bring us God's word in a moment. Just going to read the passage. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount for the last few weeks. Amazing sermon that speaks of us being apprentices of Jesus and what that might mean. And so today we're turning to Matthew chapter 7 and we're going to be looking at the first six verses of Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. May God bless his word to us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks into our lives today. And we thank you for David and uh, the way you've spoken to him in preparation for this. So we ask that you would bless him this morning, you would bless us this morning, make us willing listeners of what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome, David. Well, Alan, thank you for your... uh welcome and greeting and it's good to uh, uh, be looking out at a a few more faces than on the last time I was given the privilege of sharing in this way. You look like masked intruders but nevertheless I think you're fairly friendly. It's really good to to be here. You know one of the moderately irksome if less unnerving aspects of lockdown has been the inability to get a haircut. Uh, My own hirsute needs were admirably addressed by my wife's dexterity with our dog's coat clippers. Uh, But others, it seems, have fared less favorably. Indeed, one former prime minister's lack of careful grooming made the headlines. I speak, of course, about Tony Blair's unclipped cavalier lookalike image that became the subject of much cruel commentary. Now, naturally, our current Prime Minister's hysterical hairstyling has long been legendary and uh, predated the current crisis. But hairstyles have been in the news, and uh, pondering such serious and solemn subject matter recently brought to mind the possibly apocryphal story that belongs to those now dimly distant, previously carefree, pre-COVID restriction times, and concerns a salesman who visited his hairdresser ahead of taking a business trip to Rome. His barber, Emilio, himself an Italian, uh, on learning of his client's destination, rather haughtily declared that (coughs) he considered his country's capital city greatly overrated. And then he inquired as to the airline with which the man had booked his flight, and the precise hotel he intended staying at on his arrival. When the salesman told him, the uh, hairdresser insisted 
that he considered his customer's chosen carrier as utterly unreliable and uh, his choice of accommodation extremely unwise as it had the reputation for giving awful service. Well, endeavouring to move the conversation on into in a more optimistic direction, shall we say, the salesman uh, said that he was hoping to close a big deal um, while he was in Rome and he even hoped that he might catch a glimpse of the Pope. Well, the barber shook his head and tutted, uh, dismissively asserting that doing business with his countrymen was likely to be a big disappointment and that seeing his holiness, well, that was improbably in the extreme and only a misguided fantasist would entertain the notion Well, a while later, the salesman came into the salon and sat again in the barber's chair. Recalling his client's previous visit, the Italian hairdresser said, You're back then? No doubt things went as badly as I predicted. Why, no, the man said. It all went wonderfully well. The flight was smooth, the hotel was excellent, I landed a great order for my company, and I even got to see the Pope. Looking up at the barber in his uh, mirror, it was clear the man was astounded. You got to see the Pope? Yes, said the man. He was uh, slowly passing through the crowds in Vatican Square in his open-topped Pope-mobile. In fact, he stopped right in front of me and he laid his hand on my head in blessing. Did he say anything? said the hairdresser. Why, yes, he did. As he lifted his hands from my head, he looked down at me and he said, My son, wherever did you get such a lousy haircut? Well, this next passage of scripture, recording more of the teaching of Jesus to his followers in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, begins with some very solemn words of warning about having a censorious attitude to others, adopting a critical condemnatory, disparaging, and denunciatory attitude towards those with whose beliefs or behavior we disagree or disapprove. Just as the Ten Commandments were first outlined on two tablets of stone, summarized by Jesus later in this very Gospel of Matthew, using the familiar words, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So here in this famous exposition on the laws of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus was already addressed uh, the issue of our duty towards God, as recorded, as we've been seeing in Matthew chapter 6, now begins to speak of our attitude and our relationship to others though time precludes us looking at more than the opening six verses of this chapter seven. These address two key aspects of our relationships to others. First, with fellow believers, in particular with those whose actions and opinions we disagree. And second, with unbelievers whose actions and opinions show that they disagree with us. So let's begin by considering Christ's command concerning what should characterize our contact with fellow believers, especially those we might regard as the aberrant brother, 
or the sinful sister. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now we need to be careful to understand both this command and the nature of the warning that Jesus is giving in it. Jesus is not saying, never come to a reasoned assessment about someone else. Nor is he telling us, never offer a critical appraisal about another. Indeed, as we see in a moment when we come to look at the second phrase, uh, just a few sentences later in verse 6, Jesus speaks about occasions when his disciples will need to evaluate the morality and the motivations of people who he himself arguably rather harshly labels dogs or hogs. Clearly then, unless we should uh, regard these two different statements as that we're considering this morning uh, to be completely and mutually contradictory, then Jesus cannot mean that all manner of judging others is absolutely and without any qualification at all forbidden, nor can he be understood as commanding that his followers should never, in any circumstances, consider it proper to form or express an adverse or unfavorable opinion about another. Actually, significant sections of the New Testament would have to be dismissed as dodgy or dubious, even discounted as utterly unchristian, if that were the case. Indeed, Jesus himself, according to Luke 13, called Herod a fox. In this gospel, he calls Pharisees hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, snakes, a brood of vipers. He calls the teachers of the law blind guides. And he characterized the chief priests at the top of the Jewish echelon, as it were, as being like treacherous tenants in God's vineyard who are prepared to kill to keep their hold on power and so on. So it seems very clear that unless we can dismiss Jesus as being utterly inconsistent, that he's offering no such comprehensive condemnation here about forming or voicing an unfavorable opinion about another. What he is warning about is our having an incessantly censorious, loveless, harshly judgmental attitude towards another, one that smugly condemns them with zero thought for mercy, whilst possessing no recognition of personal fault or accepting any possibility of potential guilt in ourselves, he is cautioning against that finger-wagging posture which delights in running others down and is forever carpingly critical or constantly crabbily condemning, the sort of person who magnifies the errors of others and minimizes their virtues. If you're a student of history, you may know that uh, 21st century Christians readily dismiss perhaps the sanctimonious and misguided zealous lunacy 
of a 16th century man from uh, Great Wenham in Suffolk, a man called Matthew Hopkins, whose self-appointed career flourished in these parts, East Anglia, during the English Civil War. After he gave himself the title, Witch Finder General. In just four short years, between 1644 and 1647, Matthew Hopkins became responsible for the condemnation and the execution of more wicked women and men allegedly in league with the devil than in the entire century that preceded them. Now, we may not approve of witch finders today, but what about fault finders? The kind of Christian who inhabits a destructive world in which they are tuned in to other people's wrongdoing, but who are as blind as a bat when it comes to recognising and acknowledging our own errors. See, the truth is, fault finders rarely find anything else. And Jesus did not want his followers to ape the attitude of too many Pharisees and other religiously complacent and haughtily content religious people in his day, described in Luke 18 and verse 9 as those who were confident about their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone else. Indeed, he goes on specifically to tell the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray. And he did so to illustrate the danger and duplicity of self-pretense and spiritual arrogance which elevates oneself in the presence of God and which denigrates others. I don't know whether you've heard about the new boss of a small company in Norwich uh, who commented to his secretary about one of his elderly employees. Old Harry's past his prime. He's no real use to this firm anymore. For a start, he's got such a bad memory, it's a wonder he remembers to breathe. I've asked him to pick up a paper on his way back from lunch, but I wouldn't be surprised if he lost himself on his way to the corner newsagents. Well, later, Harry uh, came into the office, brimming with excitement, waving his hands in enthusiasm. Guess what, boss? At lunch, I met Jack Smith, who hasn't given us an order for over five years. But after chatting about your plans for the business going forward, he's agreed to consider making a new contract with us. It could be worth thousands. At which point, the boss turned to his secretary and said, See, what did I tell you? I knew old Harry would forget to fetch me my newspaper. But judging others is a dangerous business. And Jesus tells us, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I wonder if you recall that incident from the life of David recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 12 after his adultery with Bathsheba and the hand he played in all but orchestrating the death of her husband Uriah 
on the battlefield so that he could marry the warrior's widow. Well, David was visited by Nathan, the prophet, who led the king to believe that a wealthy farmer under his royal jurisdiction, choosing to offer hospitality to a passing merchant, rather than prepare a meal from his own very considerable resources, had actually callously stolen, slaughtered, and then eaten a young ewe that belonged to his impoverished neighbour. This lamb, Nathan reported, was actually regarded more as a pet than as part of that poor man's meagre assets. David, we read in verse 5 of this chapter, burned with anger against this rich but heartless citizen in his kingdom. And he said that the man deserved the death penalty, not realising that in coming to this judgment, he'd actually passed sentence on himself. You are the man, Nathan told the king. See, the prophet's story had been fabricated, made up, but the crime of theft and the callous plundering of another man's precious family was all too real. And yet David had condemned himself by his own judgment. And when you and I sit in judgment on others, we inevitably reveal something about ourselves. Perhaps our critical spirits, our pettiness, our insecurities, our attempts to build ourselves up by knocking other people down. Much criticism is often an excuse in self-promotion. How often the faults we find in others are the very things that we are overlooking or even excusing in ourselves. You see, I enjoy my meals. You overeat. And he's a gluttonous pig. Now, I'm firm. You're just stubborn. She's totally prejudiced. I'm sociable. You're a flirt. He's a philanderer. I think things through. You're a bit slow. He's as thick as two short planks. I know I'm right. You'll see reason eventually. He wouldn't recognise truth if it came up and bit him on the nose. See, eventually any self-appointed judge will find that the only person with whom they can happily or contentedly be associated is themselves. But disconcertingly, Jesus tells us that those who judge others harshly or dismissively can only expect similar treatment from the divine judge of all themselves. For the reality is God and only God is properly qualified to judge others. For he's the only one who's got all the facts. And however unbiased we consider ourselves to be, the truth is our view is often as jaundiced as the next person's. Even when we imagine we're thinking carefully, often all we're really doing 
is rearranging our prejudices. And most crucially, Jesus tells us that we will be judged by our own yardstick. You see, as believers, we have experienced the extraordinary mercy of God. His condescending and gracious forgiving love in which he fails to treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities, as the psalmist puts it. How then can we refuse to deal with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way? Indeed, a repeated failure to do so and the adoption, the deliberate adoption of a censorious and condemnatory spirit towards others is actually a tantamount to a denial of our faith. And this is so serious. To hammer home the point, Jesus, employing typical Jewish hyperbole, that's going over the top to make the point, shares a memorably humorous illustration. It's a pretty apt analogy coming from the mind of a carpenter from Nazareth. It's about a joiner in a workshop, or perhaps a chippy on a building site somewhere, seemingly oblivious to a timber log jammed into his own eye socket, being bizarrely troubled by and fastidiously determined to extract a speck of sawdust lodged beneath the eyelid of a colleague. Now, the idea is ludicrously laughable. It is impossibly overblown. But it's meant to be. Because Jesus is seeking to help us realize how absurdly foolish it is to feel confident that we can justly condemn others when we may be even more guilty than they, perhaps of the very fault for which we are judging them. And let's be honest, often speaking ill of others is a way of speaking well of ourselves. We indignantly remark, did you notice what he did? By which we mean them to conclude, of course, you know I would never do such a thing. Readily rubbishing the integrity or the character of others can sometimes be a way of publicly polishing our own characters in front of others. But you know, the first place to look for faults is in a mirror. It's one of the sad features of church history is that it is littered with the tales of dispute and division, of rifts and rupture, of squabbles and splits, And we see evidence of it even in the early church, prompting, in part, the letters written by Paul to the congregation in Corinth or the church in Rome. And there's also that rebuke in his epistle to the Philippians about two quarreling Christian ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, pleading with them to be of the same mind in the Lord. You see, even if they couldn't reconcile their difference of opinion over the cause of their quarrel, and I think significantly Paul does not name what it was, 
he begged them nevertheless to rediscover their unity in Christ as the Lord's mutually forgiven children. And such passages reveal the apostles' deep misgivings that the acrimonious arguments between believers can seriously undermine the wider witness and work of the church, as indeed history shows. However, as we've noted briefly already, Jesus doesn't say never offer loving, constructive criticism. But he does tell us to make sure that we first removed our own plank-sized faults, especially in respect of the very particular for which we would judge others to be in speck-sized error. Then, and only then, foregoing all harsh, hurtful, hypocritical censure that merely points out the fault and the flaw, we may then seek with gracious understanding to be the the means of remedy and relief. Be a brother, not a backbiter. Be a sister, not a slanderer. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones astutely reminds his readers uh, in the commentary he has on this passage There is no organ that is more sensitive than the eye. The moment a finger touches it, it closes up. Criticism of others is a delicate operation. It's like removing sawdust from the surface of another's eyeball. Certainly it can never be done behind a person's back. And even when we do it face to face, the task needs to be handled with sympathy and tenderness as one intent upon helping, not hurting. So much then for the aberrant brother or the sinful sister. What secondly about our relationship to non-believers, and in particular to the contemptuous cynic or the indifferent sceptic? Do not give to dogs what is sacred, Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn to tear you to pieces. Now, lest we should imagine that in speaking about not rushing to judge and condemn others, that Jesus was asking us to give up on any idea of exercising our critical faculties, he offers a single sentence cautionary caveat to that important general principle. Well, at least it's a single sentence in the Greek original that Matthew wrote, recording the words of Jesus. As Christians, you and I have been entrusted with something of infinite value, the good news of the gospel. Described later by Jesus in this gospel, as the pearl of great value. Therefore, in the same way that feeding pearls to pigs would be to treat both the pearl and the pig wrongly, sometimes we need to recognise that it isn't necessarily the most helpful thing constantly to proffer the gospel 
to those who repeatedly show only contempt for it. Now there's a fine line here. And Jesus certainly doesn't intend to discourage us from sharing our faith with others, even with those who currently seem disinclined to credit our Christian convictions as having any significance or merit to them. However, to persist in preaching to some who have had ample opportunity to respond and yet who have frequently vociferously and defiantly rejected it as even worthy of their consideration and perhaps of obstinately we might even say pig-headedly subjugated and subjected the gracious offer of Christ and the saving work of his cross to ridicule and scorn may actually be to do them more harm than good because it simply reinforces their harsh assessment by giving them yet another opportunity to spit out a pearl that they're resolutely refusing to swallow. You see, we do need to understand the strength of the contrast that Jesus is employing here. See, when speaking about dogs, Jesus did not have in mind uh, the pleasant-natured pet pooches with which many of us happily share our homes. Mine's called Molly. But rather the prowling pariahs, the manky mutts that lived off garbage, the feral hounds that harassed neighbourhoods, the filthy canine curs that scavenged the streets in first century Palestine. Just consider Jewish culture's view of dogs. From the Old Testament witness to them, See, when searching for a metaphor to describe God's enemies and his, the psalmist spoke of them as snarling like dogs who prowl about the city. And when the prophet Isaiah was searching for a simile um, for some people's shameless greed, he said, well, they're like dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. And when wicked King Ahab met his grisly end, if you remember. The biblical historian noted that dogs licked up his blood. Dogs are not kosher in their menu choices. You see, few, if any folk who first heard Jesus speak would have entertained a sentimental view of dogs. And as for hogs or pigs, Well, Jewish antipathy to this animal was and is proverbial. Now, I love a pork chop. But everyone in the audience listening to Jesus on this occasion in this sermon in the first century knew that hog roast and pulled pork were utterly off the menu. And when Jesus told of a prodigal son who sat in a pigsty pondering, partaking of swine's will, They knew this rabbi from Nazareth was just laying it on thick and piling on the agony of this lad's fall from the Father's grace. And so Jesus juxtaposed two notoriously reviled and abhorred things, dogs and hogs, with two things especially revered and esteemed sacred food 
and precious pearls. Sisters and brothers in Christ, can you imagine a Christian coming into the sanctuary this morning and allowing their pet pooch to hop up on the communion table and wolf down lumps of bread or lap at the wine from the communion chalice? No more could a first century Jew imagine feeding feral dogs with morsels of meat from sacrificial offerings. And when Jesus spoke about pearls, then we should know that back in those days, they were considered more precious than gold. Of greater worth than diamonds. There was a Roman general called Vitellius in AD 69, just a few years after Jesus preaches this sermon. For a short while, he became emperor. But this Roman general paid for an entire military campaign by selling one of his mother's pearl earrings. Now, actually, our sources don't tell us what she thought of her son's actions, either in respect of the campaign itself or of his method of funding it. But it gives us some idea of the contemporary value of pearls and why in that parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13 about the pearl fancier, though a man of great wealth, why he might be willing to part with everything else he owned in order to possess just one peerless pearl. And it is to one who owns just such a priceless object that Jesus likens the believer in him who has gladly relinquished all other claims to their affection, having come to discover and to recognize the incomparable worth and value of the gospel. Therefore, truly to understand the lesson contained in this enigmatic statement, we need to give due weight to the full measure of the incongruity, the utterly antithetical contrast that Jesus is painting here with his words. He conjures the thought of someone proffering the sacred to the savage, of giving something of unutterable beauty, of inestimable worth to creatures regarded with complete contempt and utter disgust. More than that, he speaks of such detestable and disreputable animals, not only mindlessly treating something of great value with total disdain, but even worse, actually menacing and threatening the safety and well-being of anyone who makes such a massively misguided decision to do so. And though the contrast between dirty dogs and divine food or between porky pigs and precious pearls is hyperbolic, the hazard and the danger of which Jesus is speaking to his apprentices here was and is all too real. And that's why for all their eagerness to share the good news of Christ, the earliest missionaries as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles did not linger on and on in the company of those who repeatedly ridiculed 
and defiantly derided their message, knowing that other fields needed to receive the good seed of the the gospel. Because although the harvest was plentiful, the laborers, a few. Now, of course, misapplying this text, we might use it to condemn the choice of an Elizabeth Elliot, whom some of you may know, Her missionary husband, Jim Elliott, along with five other Christian colleagues, was murdered in the Ecuadorian jungle by members of the lost uh, tribe of South American Orca Indians. Condemn her for returning to share the gospel with her husband's killers. Was she serving the sacred to dogs? And if he'd misapplied this text, might not William Carey the very first Baptist missionary, have actually returned home from Serampore in India long before his seven years of seemingly fruitless labour elapsed in the closing years of the 18th century. Was he throwing pearls to pigs? The followers of Jesus do need wisdom here. Our evangelical task is urgent. Our commitment to mission is vital but it is not to be undertaken indiscriminately, thoughtlessly, and without discernment. See, there is all the difference in the world between the ignorant failing to grasp the gospel swiftly and the arrogant dismissing the gospel willfully. Our missionary task calls for patient proclamation and prayerful perseverance but not spiritual naivety or irrational gullibility. The good news message with which you and I have been entrusted is a treasure of incalculable worth, a prize of immeasurable merit. And though it is to be shared freely, readily, eagerly, we should be careful not to see it demeaned, degraded, devalued by our incautious credulity or our misplaced fervour by continuing to offer the gospel to those who repeatedly and contemptuously refute its worth and belligerently refuse its offer and who may even be happy to see our work and our witness come to a sticky end not content, content to badmouth the message, they turn to brutalise the messengers. You know, the church has long experienced the opposition of atheists, but increasingly we are confronted by a militancy. And that is the word that Richard Dawkins prefers to use, by the way, to describe the attitude that he and others who share his mindset in this matter which is not only actively hostile to religion and often Christianity in particular, but which expands something verging on vitriolic hatred and is characterized by a determination to wipe out all forms of religious belief, asserting that faith itself is harmful to society and people. And that even if our beliefs were true, they would be both undesirable and detrimental and thus need to be eradicated. Christianity needs a cure, they say. 
to such this pearl that we hold in our hearts and hands is regarded as valueless and those who proffer it, like you and me, dangerous. These are challenging times to be an apprentice of Jesus. But in this matter, we must carefully heed the words of the one we call Master and Lord. For it seems to me that Jesus is echoing something of the wisdom of that Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, in which Koheleth, to give him his Hebrew title, the teacher, gives guidance that says there is a time for silence as well as a time to speak. Well, now is the time for me to be silent. I wish we had time longer to delve further into this section of the sermon to consider other crucially important lessons locked up in these lines in respect of a Christian's relationships with others. But our time has gone. So in what might have appeared at first glance to have represented two contradictory commands, we have seen instead the complementarity of character, of the spiritual instruction and the practical wisdom of Jesus to his apprentices in terms of their relationships both within and beyond the household of faith. To the aberrant brother or the sinful sister, we must not adopt a censorious, condemnatory, disparaging attitude because we are just as guilty before a sin-hating God, the judge of all, as they. However, to the contemptuous cynic, to the indifferent sceptic, neither must we adopt a credulous, uncritical, imprudent attitude, for we are custodians of a treasure that is peerless, and precious. In her last endeavours with dog clippers, my wife asked me if she liked my hair the way she'd cut it. I said I thought it looked a tad too short. She replied, don't worry, it'll grow on you, as indeed it has. Well, in similar fashion, I found myself cutting ever shorter the number of verses a single study could cover meaningfully from the 20 that uh, Alan very graciously assigned for our consideration in this next section of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. But I trust that this six-verse snippet hasn't been trimmed too short and that both what we've explored together and indeed what remains will now not only grow in our appreciation but also in our biblical estimation and most importantly of all in our practical application the apostle james implores his fellow believers in the opening chapter of his letter do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says amen